I was just out taking a stroll uh, around the, the grounds here just now in the last 15, 20 minutes. And uh, it's so beautiful here right now. Spring is really <coughs> coming on strong, heading into the fullness of summer these days. And I used to be the gardener here years ago. And uh, I, there's so many trees I planted here. It's really all the apple trees. And they were just little sticks and things all over the, the place. A lot of the look of this place is from those things that I planted back most of 20 years ago now. And uh, it's just, they're like old friends or kids I've seen grow up or whatever. Put me in a somewhat nostalgic mood. So some of that may come, <laughs> come through in the talk, I don't know. I was reflecting back on my early days here when I first came to IMS, which was not long after I had first uh, started meditating. Mm. Reflecting on <clears throat> what brings us to practice, what brought me to meditation at that time. And if we, you know, if we took a survey here in the hall and asked everybody, well, what, why did you come to this retreat or what got you started in meditation in the first place? What motivates you to practice? We'd probably get a quite a range of replies and, and certainly these reasons and our motivations change over time and what initially maybe drew us here would not be the same as what keeps us practicing over the over the years. We might initially have come to meditate because we had a desire to find more ease, some greater balance in our lives. Maybe a friend or our partner suggested it would be good for us, sent us off. Sometimes a difficult or, or a really traumatic life event can propel us to practice. We might be inspired by someone we met or something we read. We think, oh, let me see what, what that's about for myself. And we might even wind up at a retreat by accident thinking we're going on vacation and uh, <laughs> just kind of taken by surprise. <laughs> I was thinking back on my own beginnings in practice. Seems like lifetimes ago now. I had, <clears throat> I had more and not so gray hair then, for one thing. I was living in San Francisco back at that time, and I had a good life there. I had uh, you know, a lot of very good friends, and the work I was doing was interesting to me. I had business part. I had a small business with some uh, really great people who were also dear friends, and I was earning enough to live in the city, sort of, well enough, not too much stress about making ends meet. I had a really cool, beautiful vintage motorcycle and a nice leather jacket to go with it, <laughs> and I had a really nice place to live. I was living in this old fire station. And I was, <laughs> I was coming back from a trip abroad on the airplane once. 
And I, there was a, I watch the movies, sometimes they show movies on those trans-Pacific uh, across the world flights. And this movie, I was looking at the, the setting, this house, this dwelling that was the main place that the main characters lived in. And it said, wait, that's, I used to live there. <laughs> it's engine 53, that's my old fire station. And it had been, you know, taken over as a, as the uh, location, location scout had found it, I guess, for these people uh, where they lived in this movie. It's really funny to see it. So I was living, you know, I had this great house, nice motorcycle, good work, living a bohemian urban lifestyle that suited my image. So, you know, I was pretty cool. Uh, I'm not sure what happened since then. I, s <laughs> <laughs> I seem to have devolved into the nerd I always was. <laughs> it's kind of shocking. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, I was able to travel back then. I would, I'd been around, uh, had some nice experiences traveling abroad. Good life. And still, you know, at times I would notice this uh, subtle current of discontent that was underneath underneath it all. Periodically it would show up some sense of lack of ease or dissatisfaction. And the question coming into my mind, <coughs> is this all there is to, to my life? Is this how it's gonna be? Is there nothing more than this? And I felt, in a way, I felt as though I had really done, done everything I could think of in my life in terms of experiences and relationships and traveling and I couldn't think of anything new. And it seemed like I was supposed to be happy. You know, I wouldn't want, have wanted my life to be somehow diff that much different than it was at that time. So on the surface, there was nothing wrong, but there was this subtle feeling at times of, of a kind of emptiness or even, a, even almost a hopelessness that would come when I allowed myself to notice it. And at that time, I really think I employed a strategy of staying very busy a lot, keeping moving, working hard. And I think this busyness of my life kept me from really noticing a lot of things, helped me avoid some of this unpleasant feeling that was under there. And our culture affirms this busyness a lot. You know, we get a lot of positive reinforcement for accomplishing and doing. People say, hi, how are you working hard? And it's a good thing. You know, that even workaholism, working too hard is seen as really good and positive at times in our culture. And the play hard side of that and the endless entertainment, all of the things we have to do to keep us occupied. And if we keep that kind of momentum going, we can avoid feeling a lot of things. But in quieter times, occasionally, there was this subtle feeling of, of uh, emptiness that would arise in my experience. I didn't really know what to do with it. I grew up in the 1960s in high school at that time. And 
In some ways, I was a child of those times, certainly. I identified myself in high school, I'm thinking now, especially as a, a seeker, kind of counterculture type, looking for some alternative to the status quo, question authority, question reality, viva la revolucion was my style back then. Still is kind of. But I didn't want to accept the version of reality that it seemed that society and my parents were handing me. At that time, my Bible was the teachings of Don Juan. Some of you may know that book by Carlos Castaneda. And I had some, I had this sense that there had to be more to the world than, than meets the eye on, in some way. I wanted to find a different path than the ones that seemed to be offered. This is a quote from, from that book, from Don Juan and the teachings of Don Juan. He said, for me, there's only the traveling on paths that have heart, on any path that may have a heart. There I travel, and the only worthwhile challenge is to, is to traverse its full length. And there I travel, looking, looking breathlessly. So I wanted to feel like that. And I didn't really know how. I mean, there were times when I had some very profound and moving experiences at that time, a way of touching, I think I touched some places of deep connection, feeling of, of connection with the universe on a deeper level and glimpses of some possibility for some deeper understanding, occasionally connecting with that sense of looking breathlessly. But it didn't last, it was so dependent on circumstances or perhaps some chemical I had adjust, ingested, <laughs> which was certainly part of the deal at that time. And then, you know, time went on, time in college, swept up into the busyness of life and figuring out some way of earning a living, paying the rent. And I think a sense to some, to, to some degree, there was a sense of resignation to sort of finding my place in the in the whole thing, in society, in the machine. And I think I really lost sight of any of that sense of wonder and awe, lost touch with being a seeker on some sort of path to understanding. So fast forwarding a bit to where I started with being in San Francisco in my former cool incarnation. Um, when I first went to a meditation retreat, I was, uh, one of my business partners was a meditator and she would go off once or twice a year to do a retreat. And we used to tease her that she was going to silence camp, we called it. And uh, I decided I was interested in learning to meditate I think I actually may have made a New Year's resolution about it that year. But the timing was good because we, we were closing down our business and uh, I had some time. So I was talking to my friend and she suggested that I sign up for a retreat. Uh, she said that would be a good place to go learn how to meditate. So I signed up for this 10 day retreat in Southern California in the high desert 
in the Yucca Valley area. And my friend, I remember she made me promise to stay for at least three days. Uh, and she suspected I might bolt. And uh, I had not, I got there, I had not meditated for even a second. I was brand new to it. So I was a, a little bit nervous. And I remember I was especially worried about silence, being in silence. For some reason, that was the thing that I was had the most trepidation about. This might resonate with some of you who are here for your first retreat. <clears throat> so, you know, I was checking out the other yogis, seeing if they were okay. Seemed fairly normal. And, uh, you know, was it a, what was the scene like? It was a whole new culture and language seemed a bit strange. And I was uh, not a model yogi at that retreat. I, uh, I did absolutely no walking meditation because it seemed really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it, it looked really stupid. <laughs> I just, I couldn't do it. And I, I, you know, I did yoga on my own. I took long walks in the desert, but I kept the silence and I kept the precepts. And I sat as much as I could, really tried to fit myself into the schedule as best I was able. And I went to all the Dharma talks. And there was something that kept me there. You know, my friend should have said stay for at least eight days because I think it was about that long before I felt like I settled in at all. But uh, there was something that kept me there, something that really made sense in what was being offered and taught. It felt in a way as though I was being told the truth for the first time on some level. And it wasn't easy, but, but by the end of the the re that retreat, something in me had really shifted in a dramatic way. It seemed almost despite my efforts to the contrary, which made it even more powerful in a way for me. I think I probably let down some of my defenses over that time and there's some magical power of mindfulness that began to work. And I really connected to a sense of possibility that I hadn't felt in a long time. And I really, I really reconnected to a sense of wonder and awe and curiosity that I recognized from an earlier time in my life. I heard about this place, IMS, at that retreat, and I came out here shortly after that, and things have unfolded in an odd and interesting and wonderful way since then. <clears throat> since I was very young, I've really loved looking at the night sky, looking at stars, and the moon, the planets, and the night sky. My older brother had a telescope when I was little. It was a simple one, but I remember seeing Saturn through it the first time and the rings around Saturn and how incredible that was to me that it was actually a planet way out there. And I still feel that way today. I still love to read, read about the discoveries, astronomers, cosmologists, the things they look look at and think about and there's all this incredible 
new technology now and these images from like the Hubble Space Telescope or these these incredible new telescopes. It's quite mind-blowing, I think, to look at what they're discovering and seeing. I remember some not so long ago, a while ago, reading about one of these astronomers who pointed a telescope to some sort of boring part of the sky and one of these really groovy new incredible telescopes and discovering thousands of new galaxies that no one knew knew about each of them with billions of stars last year i think it was i was reading about some astronomers had seen a supernova right when it was blowing up a star exploding and uh, they were very excited it was and it was 80 million light years away. That means it happened that long ago. These vast distances, time becomes absurd. We're looking into the past when we look into the sky. I read somewhere where all of the heavier material, like the earth and the metals and the things that make up bodies is exists in the universe because of these exploding stars. So we really are just stardust. We're made of the remnants of an exploding star. That's kind of cool. And then they say, you know, we can only see about 10% of, of what the universe is visible in these stars and things. 90% of it is some mysterious dark matter that no one knows what it is. What's that about? I mean, it's like, it's really weird. I mean, it could be anything. <laughs> so, you know, we're always looking into the past when we look into the sky. Even things that are closer, they're always have just, we're just a little bit behind. Everything we see has actually happened, and sometimes it's happened, you know, the most distant th things they see are f happened 14 billion years ago. It's never really right now. We're almost just barely. This is a part of a poem by T.S. Eliot. It's from one of the four quartets from Bernd Norton. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, then all time is unredeemable. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Or say that the end precedes the beginning, and the end and the beginning were always there before the beginning and after the end, and all is always now. So I hope that cleared up <laughs> the question of time. <laughs> and then, you know, these scientists who looks, look at really small things, that makes outer space look really easy to comprehend 
when you get down to the scale of atoms. I remember reading once that if the nucleus of a simple atom was the size of an orange, then the electron would be the size of a grain of sand and it would be a mile away. <laughs> and the electron, you can't say it actually exists. It's just a probability that it might exist. But we're made up of those things. So somehow all of it's mostly empty space and a probability but it feels kind of solid, you know. I mean, think about that next time your knee is giving you <laughs> trouble. It's really almost all empty space. It feels quite solid. And it goes weirder than that. You know, they split these atoms. <clears throat> there are things called quarks. There are the up, down, top, bottom, strange, and charmed quark. At least they, they have a good sense of humor, these scientists. <laughs> and uh, apparently the top quark was the last one they found. And it has no mass and no dimension. So in other words, it, it doesn't exist, but they found it anyway. <laughs> uh, I think that's great. <laughs> apparently. In the Big Bang Theory, the entire universe, including time and space, existed as a single point of no dimension. <laughs> really nice. <laughs> and at that, when it somehow went from that to more than that, there were matter, matter and antimatter were created at that time. I have a, a little thing I want to read from a book. Um, this is by a teacher named, a meditation teacher named Wes Nisker. Some of you may know him. He has a book called The Big Bang, The Buddha, and the Baby Boom. And this is a little bit on antimatter. He says, consider the discovery of antimatter. We are told by the scientist shamans that when a particle of matter meets a particle of antimatter, they will annihilate each other. Apparently, the Big Bang created a tiny bit more matter than antimatter, so we got ourselves a universe. But the discovery of antimatter raises some new metaphysical questions for our time. Now we have to ask not only what is the matter, <laughs> but also what is the antimatter? <laughs> and what does the antimatter have against the matter? <laughs> and more important, does it matter? <laughs> hmm. So it seems that there's a lot more and at the same time a lot less to the universe than meets the eye. And we tend to live our lives in the realm of appearances, in the surface of things to a great extent. We take for granted that this realm of what meets our eye on the surface, this realm of concepts in great part, is that that's all there is to the world. And it's not to deny that the reality of the conventional world, you know, we do our best with our jobs and 
our daily lives and we live with as much grace and integrity as we can in this world of conventional reality. But if we make this the entirety of what's possible, it really severely limits our potential for understanding. The Buddha pointed directly to the illusory nature of this conventional reality. He said, regard the fleeting world like this, like stars fading and vanishing at dawn, like bubbles on a fast moving stream, like morning dewdrops evaporating on blades of grass, like a candle flickering in a strong wind, echoes, mirages, and phantoms, hallucinations like a dream. And he said in another place, know all things to be like this, a mirage, a cloud castle, a dream, an apparition, without essence, but with qualities that can be seen. Albert Einstein put it very simply, reality is an illusion, albeit a persistent one. <clears throat> so the universe is pretty awesome and strange and wonderful. We don't have to be an astronomer or a physicist to explore this mystery or really plumb the depths of what we can learn and understand about the universe. And it's our meditation practice allows us to explore the universe within the unfolding of the process of our mind and body. I mean, in a way it's really very simple, simpler even than the mind-body process, we could put the entire universe tucked neatly into one corner of our mind with plenty of room left over. And if we really look, if we take a moment to look and reflect, we see that everything, all of our experience unfolds within the mind. You know, we don't know anything outside of the mind. Think of the mind like space, but even that's limiting. Even equating the mind with space or spaciousness is a limitation. It's just open. So let's, we're gonna do an experiment, a short guided meditation here. You don't have to take any sort of special posture. Sit as you are. This will be short. <coughs> But you can let your eyes close if you'd like. Don't have to. But just sit. Just connect with the body sitting simply in the simplest way. Sit and know that you're sitting. Nothing special. Body sitting. Open your attention to sounds here in the room sound of my voice, gentle sounds, sounds that drift in. Notice how effortless it is to know sound. 
Sounds arise and they're known. We don't have to make the knowing happen. It happens by itself. So we can just settle into this flow of experience unfolding with this effortless ease that we can notice with hearing. It's just our life unfolding, it's happening. Life unfolding by itself, we don't do that. Knowing happening by itself, we don't have to do that. We just bring our awareness to this process. And it's all unfolding within the mind. It's all known within the mind. We can turn our attention to the mind in a way, it's as though we're turning our attention back on itself. This quality of open, space-like quality, empty, boundless, open. Where are the edges of the mind? Where are its borders, its boundaries? Can you find any edges? Where does my mind end and yours begin? Do they bump up against one another? Do they overlap? Can you even find your mind? Where is it? Okay, come back. Back into the hall. Let that go. At least a little bit. So in a way our practice in mindfulness or meditation practice is a lot like scientific exploration. We gather tools the way a scientist might use a telescope or a microscope or a, a giant collider, particle collider. We use these tools and then we set out into the unknown and in a way, our entire practice is an exploration into the mystery of the mind, to understanding what this is. And the primary tool we use is mindfulness. That's the tool we take, that <coughs> we use for this exploration. So it's been an introduction up till now. This is the Dharma talk subject is mindfulness. So this is my version of the talk that Michelle and Rebecca gave the last two nights. There's really only like four or five Dharma talks that exist and, and we just give different versions of them. 
this is my version of Dharma talk number two. <laughs> so yeah, mindfulness. It's this simple and yet remarkably powerful tool as potentially transforming mental factor. And it really opens the door. It's the key to the entire path of practice. And one of the beautiful things about mindfulness, I think, is how simple and accessible it is. You know, we don't have to attain some special exalted state, some kind of deep absorption in order to be mindful. You know, if we look, if we pay attention and notice the shift in our consciousness when we go from being lost to being present, when mindfulness arises in that way, we see it's really a light shift. It's not a huge change in consciousness. It's like a little one flick of a dial and then we're present and it's like this and we know it. So this mindfulness is available in any moment. You know, we don't have to spend all day kind of gritting our teeth and getting ready to have our moment of mindfulness. It's not like that. I remember reporting to one of my teachers, my first long three month retreat here, I think, that I was the only one at the retreat who hadn't had a moment of mindfulness. Uh, somehow not having noticed it. I remember my teacher said, asked me what made me so special. <laughs> at the time. We don't trust it. Another great thing about mindfulness is that there, there's nothing in our experience there's absolutely nothing that we can't be mindful of. That is good. And anything in our experience can serve as a vehicle for the arising of liberating insight. And there's actually no hierarchy. It's not better to be mindful of one thing as opposed to something else. It doesn't matter ultimately what we're mindful of which is good news for us as meditators, I think. And it means that we already have everything we need right here, right now in this moment. So we're complete in this way, just as we are. You know, we can be such intensity junkies as Michelle mentioned this morning, experience junkies. We want our meditation to be really dramatic we want lights and bells and whistles. And we don't really trust that mindfulness, we don't trust it because it's not that big a deal in some ways. The Buddha praised mindfulness a lot. Here's a verse from the Dhammapada. Mindfulness is the pathway to the deathless heedlessness, the path to death. The mindful do not die. The heedless are as if dead already. These are strong words. 
and perhaps there's a, a poetic quality there as well, but they point, I think, really directly to the liberating potential of this factor of mindfulness. In the Samyutta Nikaya, he said, mindfulness, I declare, is all helpful. And in the opening stanza of the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the main discourse for our meditation, for the instructions for <clears throat> the Vipassana practice. He said, it's, he said, mindfulness of the four foundations, of these four spheres of attention. He said, mindfulness of the four foundations is the direct path for the purification of beings for overcoming sorrow and discontent and for the realization of Nibbana. High praise indeed. And so I think it's worth exploring in a little detail, at least some of the qualities and functions of, of this powerful mental factor. So this next part is a little bit technical. Don't worry about it. You don't have to remember it. Maybe something, one thing in there might be of use or stick with you. <clears throat> the Pali word that we translate as mindfulness is sati, S-A-T-I, sati. And it's related to a verb, sarati, which means to remember. And this points to one of the main functions of mindfulness. It's, in a way, you could say it's remembering to be present, remembering the present moment, remembering to actually show up, to be present here and now. So with this power of mindfulness in this way, we connect deeply with the truth that all we ever have is this present moment. And then we're either here for it or we're not, remembering to be present or being lost. H.L. Mencken said this, we are here and it is now. Further than that, all human knowledge is moonlight. So we connect with the present moment through this function of memory, remembering. So we can call this presence of mind. Mindfulness has this quality of presence of mind. You know, one is wide awake with regard to the present moment when mindfulness is present. So implied in this quality of presence is that mindfulness stands in direct opposition, you could say, or functions as a direct counter to this quality of absent-mindedness or heedlessness that was uh, the Buddha spoke about in, the, in that quote from the Dhammapada that I read. Mm. Another way that mindfulness, that sati, relates to memory is a quality of relaxed receptivity. We've been really stressing this relaxed, receptive attitude of the mind when we practice, when we meditate. You can think of a time when you're trying to remember something, some incident or a fact from the past. And sometimes the harder we try, the less we can bring it to mind. And often if we set it aside completely, 
at a later time, it'll spring to mind spontaneously. So with mindfulness, we're not chasing after experience. We're not trying to get to some particular experience. We're allowing life to unfold. We allow things to arise. We have this relaxed, receptive stance with regard to our experience. So mindfulness has this quality of remembering, of memory. It functions, at, functions as an antidote, a counter to heedlessness, to absent-mindedness. It has this quality of relaxed receptivity. Another function or a quality you could say of mindfulness is that it has, seems to have an ability to gather together or maybe it would be more, more accurate to say that it allows for the emergence of, of other wholesome factors in the mind. I'll give just one example of the, what are called the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment. And we may speak about these in more detail, someone one of these nights, but these are seven factors in the mind that are said to be the qualities that bring us towards awakening, that support us and aim us towards awakening, towards enlightenment. And there are three energizing factors and three calming factors, and then mindfulness, which gathers and balances them all. So we have energy, virya, investigation, dhamma, vichaya, the Pali and piti, rapture. Michelle spoke about this morning, this quality of joyful interest on the energizing side. And then we have calm, pasadi, concentration, samadhi, and equanimity, opeka, on the calming, tranquility side. And it's said that of these factors, the only one that we can't have too much of is sati, mindfulness. It gathers together and balances these energizing and calming factors of mind. Running out of time. A few more things. Mindfulness is impartial and non-interfering with regard to experience. It doesn't pick and choose. And it's not trying to change our experience. It really connects with things just as they are. So in a way it's uninvolved and a certain quality of detachment, not in a way of distancing, we get right close, but detached in that it's non-reactive to experience. It just brings us there, allows things to be just as they are, free of judgment. So this quality of non-reactivity, and this points to quality of choicelessness, you could say choiceless awareness, which is one of the ways that we begin to practice more and more. We may choose, you know, when we, when we meditate, we may choose to anchor our attention with the breath or body posture, or maybe hearing something that we use as a point of departure or a place to come back to when things are a bit chaotic or we don't know what's going on so much. But ultimately, we open to the entire range of our experience. 
we pay attention to whatever is predominant in any moment. And there's this quality of non-reactivity in terms of what we like and dislike, pleasant and unpleasant experience. If we notice that there's grasping at pleasant or aversion to unpleasant, if that comes into the mind, that's not a function of mindfulness, that's something else. Mindfulness doesn't have that kind of reactivity. It's not part of it. This kind of choiceless awareness, just being aware of whatever is arising in the moment is sometimes called bare attention because our attention is bare because we're not adding anything to our experience. We're seeing things just as they are. And seeing things in this way begins to allow us some freedom from habitual patterns of reactivity in the mind and the heart, patterns and habits of projection. And we can start to see how these kinds of habits and patterns that are often very deeply conditioned, very habituated, how they function in our lives and how they can keep us bound. And so just the mindfulness itself and bringing us close, allowing us to see things in this way, this quality of mindfulness of awareness can bring a a quality of freedom just in the seeing of things this way, because we have some possibility of choice then. We can assess things in our life from a place of greater calm and clarity and make better choices, wise, appropriate choices and actions. And this leads to greater happiness, greater happiness in our lives. So quick sum up, we have this quality of memory of remembering to be present, this presence of mind, mindfulness with this antidote to heedlessness, this quality of relaxed receptivity, this gathering together of wholesome mental factors, impartiality, non-reactivity that leads to this choiceless awareness, leads to bare attention. A lot of good stuff. So what do we do with it? What is our practice? What is this exploration? So as I said, we train ourselves to bring this receptive, non-reactive alertness, awareness to, to the entirety of our experience. So ultimately nothing is left out. It's like that beautiful poem that Rebecca read last night. I knew myself completely, no part left out. We leave no part out. We can't leave any part out. Freedom would not be possible if some part were left out. So we learn to become present more and more often. We start to unravel our experience and our relationship to it, unravel our lives in a way. We begin to see things on more and more fundamental levels. It's kind of like peeling away the layers of an onion And there's this movement from the the surface of things, from the conceptual realm, really to this field of direct experience. It's 
kind of a precognitive connection to things. And our whole life becomes the terrain of this exploration. It's really a beautiful thing. We leave nothing out. Our whole life is the realm that we explore. And as I said before, anything in our experience serves, can serve as a vehicle for understanding, for liberating insight to arise. This is hard for us to learn, to really believe and accept this. You know, we're so conditioned to think that certain kinds of experiences are are good and useful and other ones we reject. We condition to move towards to prefer certain kinds of things, usually pleasant things, pleasant experiences. We judge those as good. Somehow they're more valuable in our eyes, in our hearts. And unpleasant ones, we judge those as bad, not so valuable. And we can see how so much of our life is lived in this realm of push-pull between these poles of pleasant and liking, unpleasant not liking. But our practice using this tool of mindfulness is to bring this relaxed, receptive awareness to whatever is arising in a way we bear witness to our life, to our experience without judging it. And we drop below the surface, below the realm of concepts and all that we think we know. We're all so smart and we know so much. There's a great freedom letting go of all that we know in that way. And so we begin to explore our body, for example, in terms of what are called the four great elements that we've spoken about, earth, air, fire, and water. Sounds kind of alchemical and archaic, these terms, earth, air, fire, and water. But if we really look, if we drop below our images and pictures and concepts of body, what we actually see is that all materiality exists as the play of these four elements and the different ways that they manifest. The earth element with these qualities of hardness and softness and different varieties of texture, roughness, smoothness. So much of our experience of body is this quality of earth element. Sit long enough, there's a lot of hardness starts to arise. And air, this as the manifests as movement and vibration, certain qualities of supportedness from air element. And fire as temperature, heat and cold, and all the range, cool and warm, manifestation of the fire element. And water has the qualities of fluidity, flowing and cohesion. It's what coheres the whole thing together. Like if you have flour and you mix water, you get dough. It's that quality of cohesion. 
sticking things together. And we see the whole body in, in this way. At times it's very clear. Or we see the sensations of body and, and sensations in the mind and the heart in terms of this quality of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. Vedana, it's called. It's a quality of feeling tone that arises with every moment of experience, every moment of contact at one of the six sense doors. Said this quality of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant arises in every moment. And when we begin to see this more clearly, then there's this possibility for freedom. Rebecca spoke about this quite a bit last night. There's a possibility of freedom at that, at that point. We see our deeply conditioned patterns and habits of moving towards or away from experience, this reactivity relating to pleasant and unpleasant experience. We start to see our thoughts and our emotional life in terms of how fleeting and in, insubstantial thoughts are really are, emotions really are. When we look, there's nothing there. Yet they have this power in our lives. We see them more and more in terms of what's wholesome and useful, and what's unwholesome, not so useful. When we're caught in identification with things, and when we aren't. We, can, we begin to see our experience in terms of what are called the three marks of existence, three universal characteristics that are true of anything in our experience. The quality of impermanence, nothing lasting for even a second when we look closely. This quality of anicca, impermanence. It's the quality of all conditioned phenomenon. And this characteristic of dukkha, of unreliability, the un ultimately unsatisfactory nature of experience because it's changing always. We can't count on any of it to bring us any lasting happiness. And this coreless, uncontrollable, impersonal nature of things, things happen because of causes and conditions. We see how our whole life is this flow of cause and effect. And we see that there's a lawful, a lawfulness to this unfolding. That things happen for a reason. That there are causes and results and it's it's like seeing the law of nature. It happens in the same way that nature unfolds lawfully. We can really begin to see our whole experience as this unfolding of nature. In a way we see just life is living itself. And when we touch this in the deepest way, we can lay down this huge burden of the doing of our lives.
And this is a quote from, I think it's Ajahn Chah. It's, uh, <coughs> it sounds like something he would have said, but it's something I reflect on often. He said, what we're doing with this practice is we're giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. I really love this description. What we mistakenly appropriated as our own. I have to wrap this up. I have to read this one poem that points to this, I think, in a really beautiful way. It's uh, by a woman named Linda France. It's called Dreaming the Real. I'm lying down looking at the color of sky falling through the trees, dreaming the real, tasting what it feels like to love it. Why did it take me so long to let go? Simply exhale so the day could breathe itself in and open without me standing in the way. How could I forget the grace of my own body, strong as this blue, tender as the white of the wild blossom, warm as midday light. Let me practice a patience bold enough to hold every weather, trusting the elements, the beauty of rain, and all its shades of gray. I want whatever's real to be enough. At least it's a place to begin and to master the art of loving it and feel it love me back under my skin. So ultimately, as, our, as this exploration unfolds, through this exploration, we see that, that nothing changes and yet everything is somehow transformed. This is this great, beautiful paradox of this path. And we discover a great allowing, a great relaxation in this letting go of so much of the doing of our lives. And we discover a freedom and a peace that doesn't depend on the conditions of our lives being any particular way. And that's a true freedom. We can hold the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows from that place. In a way, it's like coming home. We arrive here and that's enough. So I'm going to close with a bit more T.S. Eliot. Sometimes the poets touch these things with words in a beautiful way. This is another excerpt from part of the four quartets. This is from Little Gidding, just a part of it. <clears throat> we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, unremembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, 
always, a condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So we'll sit quietly for a few minutes and I'll ring the bell. Thank you for your kind attention. There's time for some walking now and then we'll do the metta chanting maybe three minutes after nine. So please come if you are inclined and have the energy and we'll, we'll go through the metta sutta again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.